Thank you guys so much. It is great to see everyone today. I walked in uh, kind of after everybody kind of loaded in, and I turned to one of our church members, Walt, and I said, Walt, I can't believe we got a full house today. <laughs> With all the rain outside and everything, it is so great. Thank you so much for being here and being part of our services. Just a couple of quick announcements to add to what uh, Kenny was sharing earlier, and these are some really great things that are going on. Um, our board voted uh, this past week to do some refurbishments to our playground area out here. So over the course of this spring, you'll begin seeing some of that and adding some more uh, equipment uh, to that. And so we look forward to those things happening. Also, uh, this past week, or no, actually a couple weeks ago, right before Christmas, um, Gary France, who's one of our local HVAC technicians, uh, replaced our last of four large units behind these buildings. And so it was just a really wonderful thing to know that uh, we're really setting the church up. Those are expensive items that we're really setting the church up for success moving forward. And we're debt-free. And isn't that wonderful to be in that kind of a situation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to start this morning by sharing some names with you, and these are actually real names that people named their kids, okay? So let's just, let's just take a look. Here's the first one. Uh, someone thought that their kid was just, everything was going to go well in their life, and so they named her Fortune. Another one wasn't so sure what direction their kid was going to take, and so they named him Bandit. Uh, another one was named Tidal. Somebody was from the Far East and named their child Egypt. Another one, again, wasn't so sure of the direction of the future and went with felony. Another one read way too much Harry Potter and named him Voldemort. Um, here's one who was a really great speller, maybe had a future spelling bee child and named their child ABCD. ABCD. <laughs> anyway, this is real. Um, now look at this one, this next one. Go ahead and show us this next one. And you're looking at going, what, what, what is that? What, what's happening there? This mom and dad, oh, sorry, this mom and dad went with Abilene. That's Abilene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what that is. Okay, um, and so then the next one was uh, named Chardonnay. I'll let you deal with that one. Um, another one here named Delirious. Uh, then we have a rocket. And then this next one was one that I actually went to school with. This is a real name. His name was William Williams. Uh, we also have a Star Wars fan. They named their child Jedi. And then another Star Wars fan, I found out that the dad's name was Luke, and they named their child Anakin. And then our final name here is the name, you're wondering how to pronounce that, Unique. And it is. <laughs> All right. Well, in any case, uh, we are in a series looking at the life of the great man of God, Job. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, we met Job. Last week, we learned about this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day that took place in his life where he lost everything. Uh, only he and his wife remained. And I don't know if I asked Brian to do this, but if you can maybe pull up Job chapter 1 and verse 21, or you can look at it up in your Bibles, but it'll pop up here on the screen here in a second. And at the tail end of that verse is actually the words that y'all sang this morning. It comes from, a, I think it's an old Matt Redmond song, right? So that's an oldie but a goodie. Um, and it's the song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. And so that's where that song comes from. This is Job who says these words. So on the, on the tail end of receiving all this terrible news, uh, here's Job saying, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, today we will look at Job chapter 2, uh, where 
uh, Satan comes before God a second time because his scheme to get Job to curse God didn't work. And so he says, look, I want to hit him one more time. And so he's coming to God to ask for permission to do this. Um, our text comes from Job chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 and 2. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Again, we stand week in and week out because we believe that this is where truth comes from, right? Didn't come from something you heard on the radio program this week. Didn't come from something you read on the internet. Didn't come from some wisdom that you heard from somebody at work. But this is where truth comes from. And so we stand week in and week out to be reminded of that. Job chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let's read together. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. You may be seated. I know what you're wondering, Gordon, how are you going to get a whole sermon out of those two verses? Well, haha, just hang on, hang in there, okay? Hold on to your seats, buckle them up, here we go. Verse 2 says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And we learned a couple of weeks ago that that phrasing, the sons of God, is actually referring to angels. This is a council of angels. We see the same thing happening in heaven in the book of Daniel. We see the same thing happening in heaven in the book of Revelation. We see the same thing happening in Isaiah chapter 6 where there's sometimes in heaven there are these councils of angels that God brings them in, shares with them the game plan, and this is one of those such occasions. It says there in verse 1 that in addition to the angels, uh, the most beautiful angel, remember Satan is a fallen angel, the most beautiful angel that God ever created. He's actually described, I believe it is in the book of Daniel, and he's covered in uh, all these beautiful colors and gems. Um, he's a beautiful creature. It says, Satan also came among them, it says, to present himself before the Lord. Now, I shared a couple of weeks ago that the word Satan in English is actually what's called in translation circles a transliterated word. So what they did was, in, in the English translation, they took how that word sounds in uh, Hebrew. I think I've got a slide for this. You can pull that up. They took how this word sounds in Hebrew, and they just made it sound that pretty much that same way in English. Now... Uh, and so the word in Hebrew is uh, Satan, which uh, is actually Ha-Satan, translates the Satan or the Satan in English. Uh, they did the same thing in the, in the Greek New Testament. I think that's why the English translators did it this way, because it is a proper name. And so they just wanted to use the same sounding of the name in Hebrew as it is in Greek. It's uh, Satanye, and then it, uh, in English uh, we get the rendering of Satan. But if you were to actually translate that word, and they do, they do the same thing with this in, in uh, for example, Adam. Adam, the name Adam in English actually means man. But rather than go around, uh, but Adam's also a proper name referring to the guy in the garden at the beginning of time. Same thing with the word tabernacle. The word tabernacle is actually a Hebrew word. When we translate it into English, it actually means to dwell. Same thing with the word baptism. I don't know if you all knew that or not, but baptism is an invented word. In the English language, it comes from the Greek term baptizo. It means to wash, but again, just to give it some more oomph, to give it some credibility, created a new word, and we have the word baptism. So that's what we're dealing with here in Satan. But the word Satan, I'm just rambling a little bit. Y'all hang in there. So the word Satan is actually, when it's translated, it means adversary. And so when you put the definite article ha, which it always does here in Job chapters 1 and 2, in front of the word Satan, 
uh, it actually comes out the adversary. And so everywhere he's, when I go through the rest of this text today, what I'm going to do is, instead of using the word Satan, I'm going to use the word the adversary. And I'll hopefully be driving at a point here a little bit later in the sermon. So verse, uh, so for example, in Job chapter 2 and verse 1, again, it would say, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the adversary also came among them. Y'all follow me so far, right? Okay. All right, verse 2. And the Lord said to the adversary, from where have you come? The adversary answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Now, God is omniscient. God knows everything. It sounds like God didn't know where Satan had been. No, God knew where Satan had been, but for the, perhaps for the sake of that council of angels, he's asking Satan, so that he gets the information out there so the angels can hear it. Perhaps for our benefit one day who would be reading this text, and we learn this as well, that Satan's been walking up and down uh, on the earth. Notice the adversary's response, though. God asks him where, he was, where he's been, and the adversary, the adversary says, from walking up and down and going to and fro on the earth. Now, this statement is just a repeat. It's almost a, it is a mirror statement of what had been, of what the answer that, that the adversary had given back in Job chapter 1 and verse 7. Let's take a look at that. It says, the Lord said to the adversary, from where have you come? The adversary answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. So we have a repetition in chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2 of the exact same conversation that had been had or recorded over in Job chapter 1. Now, when the Bible repeats itself, it's trying to make a point, okay? It means, you know, put your ears up, put your, I don't know, Vulcan ears up or whatever, they, whoever's got pointy ears, I guess the elves, you know, perk your ears up and listen here because there's a point that the Bible is trying to make. Um, the point is that the Bible is trying to in, uh, bring across to us is twofold. First, these passages teach us that number one, the adversary, Satan, has unlimited access to the real estate of planet Earth. You see that in that verse, in verse two. He's walking up and down, he's going to and fro upon the Earth. He can be any place, go any place, pop in and out of places. He has unrestricted access to planet Earth. Uh, the adversary Satan was here in the, during the days of Adam and Eve walking in the garden. He was here during the days of Job. He has unrestricted access to anywhere on planet Earth. And that is what the text is communicating us, especially through this repetition of this verse. The second point that we draw from this is that the fact that he's walking up and down and going to and fro upon the Earth insinuates that this is one wily fella. He's active. He's out there. He's not just kind of sitting back and watching our lives go by, but rather he's very much involved, very much engaged, trying to actively, scheming, trying to thwart the plans of Almighty God. The adversary is on the move. Now, I want to take a time out here, and I want to have a discussion about the millennial reign of Christ. And you say, the what? <laughs> I mean, and how does, how does the millennial reign of Christ even factor into Job chapters 1 and 2? I mean, I, I don't, where are you going here, Gordon? Well, let me, let me kind of explain the millennial reign of Christ to you here, and I think you'll see how all this stuff ties together. Flip over in your Bibles, or you can follow along with me on the screen, to Revelation chapter 20. So we're leaving the Old Testament. We're going all the way to almost to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Um, and we find here in six verses, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, the only place in the Bible that I'm aware of, I need to put that caveat out there, 
And I read a lot this week, so it's the only place. But it's the only place that I'm aware of where the millennial reign of Christ is described. Okay? Six verses. The only place in the Bible where it's described. Revelation chapter 20. Well, let's start with verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel. Uh, Who is it that sees an angel? John. All right. So this is John, one of the disciples of Jesus, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, the guy who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the one who receives and writes the book of Revelation. Um, And so this John uh, says, verse 2, or verse 1, Then I, John, saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. So at least in one hand, he's got a key to what the Bible calls the bottomless pit. It's also referred in other places to as the abyss. And it says, perhaps in the other hand, perhaps in the same hand, I don't know. But it says he's holding onto a great chain. Well, what are you going to do with a key? What are you going to do with a great big chain? Look at verse 2. It says, the angel sees the dragon earlier in the Revelation. John describes the dragon, or a dragon. And here the dragon is identified in verse 2 as that ancient serpent. Going back to the Garden of Eden. Our Garden of Eden, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long does the verse say? Remember, this is the description in the text of the millennial reign of Christ. Binds him for a thousand years. A millennium is a thousand years. That's the length of time of a millennium. The text goes on to say in verse 3 that the angel threw Satan into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Why? So that the devil, Satan, the adversary, might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, Satan must be released for a little while. It then goes on to talk about how during this 1,000 years that those who were martyred for their faith in Christ will reign with Christ during that 1,000-year period. Uh, we then pick up in verse 7 that the 1,000 years are over. That 1,000-year window, is, we've left verse 6 behind. We're now into verse 7. The 1,000 years have ended. Look at this. It says, when the 1,000 years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. So the chains are cut, the, the locks unlocked. Uh, the, the doors are open, and Satan, the adversary, is allowed to come out, it says, verse 8, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And then, I don't have verse 9 for you, but verse 9 goes on to report that then Satan will have the nations of the world come around Israel, that holy city, God's beloved city, and they will surround it, and they'll be ready for war against Israel, and then fires, this is all, this is like verse 9, I'm describing it more descriptively than the Bible does. There'll be fire that comes down from heaven in verse 9, it will consume the enemies of God, and that'll be the end of things. And then we're going to go on to, if you start in verse 11 through 15, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, so he's going to be let out of his prison at the end of this thousand years. Uh, great war will take place, or at least they're not going to be a war. There's just going to be people lined up for war, but they won't get very far. The fire is going to come down from heaven, and that'll be the end of it. Uh, back in verse 3, it says that, though, he was locked up in this prison, locked up in this bottomless pit, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. The question is, when does that 1,000-year window take place? When does that 1,000-year window take place? Um, is it going on right now? Or is it going on after Jesus returns? Jesus returns, skies part, dead in Christ are raised. Uh, meet him in the sky, and the resurrection takes place, and then the thousand year begins here on the earth? Or is it going to happen before Jesus returns, but it clearly hasn't happened yet? Like it's sometime off into the future, 
it'll start, but then it, and there'll be this thousand years, and then Jesus will return. Well, there's different views of this millennial reign of Christ, and these are known as the amillennial view, the premillennial view, and the postmillennial view. I want to explain these to you, so just hang in there with me for just a few moments. Here's the first of these. It's called the amillennial view. Um, if you take a look at this diagram here, you can see the church age. The church age is the age that we live in right now. From the amillennial perspective, the church age that we live in right now is just rocking and rolling along. And then when, it and then when Jesus decides it's time for him to return, the Father will let him know Jesus is going to come down and he's going to return. And there'll be the great resurrection that you and I know about and are, are excited about. And so what the amillennial view, I don't know if you can see my little fine print there and there at the bottom, but it says basically that Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 is now. So in the amillennial view, that's how they see this. And then Jesus returns. You have the resurrection of the dead. You also have the resurrection of the unbelievers. And then they go on to their second death after they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Just read Revelation chapter 20. It's all in there. Um, but one of the problems for the amillennialists is, I mean, Jesus, if, if you say that Jesus already locked up Satan, that, that's what the amillennialists are saying, then uh, and by my count, right, one, two, three, four, it's been more than a thousand years. Uh, since Jesus left the earth, so how do you, how do you account for that? Uh, well, here's what the amillennialist says. The amillennialist says uh, that the thousand years is not a literal number, but rather that it is a number of completion. That's key, that it's a number of completion. Uh, for example, in uh, Psalm chapter 50 and verse 10, uh, the psalmist writes, For every beast of the forest is mine, God is saying this, the cattle on a thousand hillsides. What's the point? Is God saying he only owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides? No. He's saying he owns all the cattle because the thousand is the number of completion. If the psalmist had said that God owns the cattle on 500 hillsides, a Hebrew person living at that time period would have thought that God only owned the cattle on 500 hillsides. But because they heard the number 1,000, it was always a number of completion to them. It was God communicating he owns all of them. Well, take that to this text in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, where it mentions 1,000. And the amillennialist says, all God is communicating with this number 1,000 is not a literal number, but rather he is communicating a number of completion. That when the time is right, when things are complete, then the Lord Jesus will return. Um, that's the amillennialist perspective. And to be fair to the amillennialists, I think, it's, I think it's important for us to at least note this, that there are also postmillennialists and premillennialists who see this number 1,000 as a non-literal number. There are others who do see it as 1,000, but then there are all some on, on all three of these camps who say, you know, this is a figurative number. It's supposed to be in the most highly figurative, right, revelation book of the Bible. Um, so uh, anyhow, that's how amillennialist sees this. That Satan's locked up right now. All right, let's go to our next slide, the premillennial view. Pre means before. And so the notion in the premillennialist view is that the return of Christ will come before the 1,000-year reign. It will start, it will inaugurate the 1,000-year reign. So you can see the church age there. You can see the point at which the return of Christ happens. And then this 1,000-year reign of Christ going forward, and then when that thousand years is up, whether it's figurative or literal, when that thousand years is up, uh, you get, you know, the eternal state and the judgment seat of Christ and all those sorts of things in Revelation chapter 20, starting at verse 11. So in other words, uh, there's this church age, return of Christ, the thousand years, and then the white throne judgment. One of the big problems with this theory, and they, and they, they all have problems, 
<laughs> they do. They just do. Right? Uh, that's why they all write books and nobody ever wins the debate. But one of the big problems with this theory is that uh, it does not, it foresees a time when the Lord Jesus will return. Am I right on my? No. Yeah. When the Lord Jesus, see, I'm already mixed up. When the Lord Jesus returns and then the thousand years begins. But during this thousand years of his reigning here on the earth, there's still going to be sin. There's still going to be rebellion. There's still going to be people who know that Jesus is in Jerusalem. And they've seen, if you notice on there, the resurrection of the dead. Like people who have died that we know are now alive, living on the earth for this thousand years. And people still don't believe? Like, really? So, I mean, all we ever get from the premillennial view is the Tim LaHaye Left Behind books, right? I don't know if y'all are familiar with those or not. But that's what you get. You get the return of Christ stuff. You get the rapture stuff. But they don't go on to talk about, you know, if you're premillennialist, then you have to accept also this whole thousand years reign of Christ with sin and rebellion and stuff still going on on the earth. You got, like, dead people that lived a thousand years ago. Here comes, here comes King David walking down the road, and I still don't think that Jesus is the answer to all the problems of the world. Anyway, so that is a problem. Again, they all have problems. That is one of the problems that the premillennialist view um, has. Let's talk about the last view the, uh, of the millennial reign of Christ. This is the post-millennial view. Post means after. And I'm not sharing this, by the way, in this order because I'm not ranking these. Okay, this is not Gordon's view. I'm going to let you choose whatever you want to choose this morning. So um, the post-millennialist view uh, see the millennial reign of Christ as coming after the church age in which we now live. So they're saying, look, we live, clearly Satan's not locked up right now. This is the premillennialist view. And so we're in the church age, but then they just see that this that at some point, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1 is going to be triggered, and uh, the chain and the key and Satan in the bottomless pit, and then he won't be deceiving the nations. And so you'll have this thousand year, whether literal or figurative, uh, this reign of Christ on the earth where peace will come into the earth, the nations will all be getting along together. Again, still be rebellion, still be sin, we won't be in a perfection state, uh, but and then finally, Jesus will return, and you'll get the resurrection of believers, resurrection of unbelievers, all those sorts of things. So which are you? <laughs> yes, yes, right? That's a good answer. Um, you know, it, it, here's what happens in, in these circles, right? You get people that believe that if you don't hold on to this view, you know, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, you're not going to make it to heaven. Like, if you don't think about this the way I think about this, which, because it's so clearly written in the six verses of Revelation chapter 20, right, that, that this is an essential of the faith. And that if you don't agree with this perspective, then, uh, you know, salva- there's no salvation for you. And, friends, that, that's, we need to take this off that table. Um, however you view the millennial reign of Christ and when you think these things are going to happen, I mean, it's fun for me to sit in my office at, during the week and study this stuff, but uh, it, it does not affect anybody's. This is not a salvation issue. It is not one of the essentials of the faith, okay? I just want to go ahead and put that out there. How does all this tie into Job, though, right? And the adversary walking up and down and going to and fro upon the earth. Well, it raises the question of where is Satan right now, right now? Is he still as he was in the garden, as he was in the days of Job, walking up and down, going to and fro upon the earth, deceiving the nations just as he was back then? From the amillennial's perspective, they say no. 
They look around at how the upward trajectory of the world and how things are improving a little bit. I don't really know about that, but anyhow, they think things are improving a little bit, um, and then eventually Jesus is going to return, um, and that that's going to be the end of it. And then, of course, you have the post-millennials that say he's still walking up and down upon the face of the earth. He will be locked up at some point. We'll have the thousand-year reign, and then Jesus will return. And then, of course, the premillennials who also say Satan's walking up and down, going to and fro upon the face of the earth, which, you know, again, they all have problems, right? But, uh, you know, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, I didn't give you that verse, he says, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against powers and principalities and rulers in the darkness of this world. I described this this past week, whether you're amillennials, premillennials, or postmillennials. By the way, our Thursday morning men's Bible study, y'all are just awesome. So I've never had, in all my years of preaching here or anywhere else, I have never had the opportunity to bounce my sermons off of people before they get to you guys. And so that that ends up what what's, I've kind of taken over the Thursday morning men's breakfast Bible study group, and they get to hear this stuff and preview this stuff and say, that won't work. Um, so it's, I appreciate that group of guys. Well, I described this to one of the guys, again, whichever view you have. Um, I was driving in this morning. It was around 645, and I passed by the Pauly's house, and here comes a little white and black blob. Y'all seen those things, right? It's that time of year. They love this weather, by the way. And uh, I used to live in Kentucky. They were prolific there. And so, I mean, literally walk out the back door and you got to like look around before you take the garbage out. Uh, But here goes the skunk out here on the side of the road. And uh, it's just blobbing down the side of the road. And if you've ever smelled a dead skunk on the side of the road, you know that it's pretty strong when you drive by, but you get a mile down the road and for some reason it's still in your car, right? And so it's, this, it's kind of the same way, whether you're amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, whether Satan's alive here on the earth and, 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 and walking up and down, going to and fro, either way, the stink of that skunk has stayed with us through, throughout all of this. All right, let, let, let's just kind of time out here for just a second. <laughs> what a day. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I was thinking this past week, I was like, how do I get this job? I mean... <laughs> It is, it is unreal. So much fun. All right, so what difference does all this make, right? <laughs> let's, let's go there. Um, that's our most important question. What difference does all this make to your life and to mine? Let's, br- let's bring this home, okay? Whether the adversary is, uh, is diminished in his influence, or if he is just as potent today as he ever was, I think the title that the Bible gives us should tell us an awful lot about him. Again, if I'm an ancient Hebrew and I heard that word Satan, Ha-Satan, Ha-Satan, every time I picked up the scriptures and read his name, I always heard the adversary, the adversary, the adversary. I knew who this guy was by the name that the Bible gave him. Friends, look at what he did to Job. The adversary brought merciless destruction on this man's life. Why? Because Job feared God. Job aligned himself with the God of the universe, and the adversary said, you are now one of my enemies. Now, I know that God allowed that to happen, and we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Um, It was Martin Luther who said, even the devil is God's devil. Think about that. But for now, let's just focus on the name of Satan, on the adversary, that he had no hesitation whatsoever, not even a hint of compassion about reducing this man's life to ashes. 
He inflicted pain. He inflicted suffering. He never felt even the slightest pause. Friends, our brains are experts at self-justifying our actions. We are really, really good at this. We think, you know what, I can handle just this little bit of sin. I, I can go there in my thoughts. I can go there with my mouth. I can go there physically. And I can handle this situation. I can control this stuff. Friends, please do not underestimate our enemy and what he is up to. Peter said it like this, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober-minded. Have your faculties about you. If before you get to that place in your physically or in your thoughts, you know, think about some people that have gone there and how life ended up in the aftermath. Be sober-minded. In other words, drink a regular diet of, of understanding who our enemy is. Be watchful, he says, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Friends, Satan is not working all things out for your good. He is working all things out for your destruction. That's what he's doing. I had a pastor friend of mine who once said that when it comes to sin, we ought to treat it like it's a rattlesnake. You ever been around a rattlesnake? Kind of gets your attention, doesn't it? Walking out through the woods, there it lay. Uh, open up the backyard door, right? You go out to look out to take out the garden. That's what we got around here, right? You look out the back door, you got to make sure there's not something laying in the corner someplace. Uh, you don't walk up to a rattlesnake and try and pet it. Nah. I mean, there's some people on TV that do. But that's what makes good TV, right? That's why, that's why it's on TV. Um, you don't take it for rides with you in your car. The way we treat a rattlesnake is we treat it sober-mindedly. We walk up to it with extreme caution. We are watchful when we are around it. In fact, if it was in a room, we'd walk the widest path we possibly could around it to get from one side of that room to the other. Well, the same thing goes with sin. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. His name is not friend. His name is not comfort. His name is not Savior. His name is Adversary. Now compare that with God's name. I've got a slide for you here. In the Scriptures, God is known as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our Provider. He is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our Healer. He is Shalom, our Peace. He is Jehovah Ra, the God or the Good Shepherd. He is Abba, Father, a good and loving man. He is Adonai, the God who is in control or sovereign. He is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the ancient of days. That's who he is. He is Elohim, the mighty one. He is Yahweh, the great I am. He is El Shaddai, God all mighty. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is comforter. He is known as a friend of sinners. And finally, he is the name above every name, 
Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and then verse 11 goes on to say, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, when you know who God is, it becomes very easy, almost instinctual, almost second nature, that when things begin to go south, we worship the Lord, just like Job did. In the midst of calamity, we get down on our knees, we cry out to God, we pray to him, we call upon his almighty name. That said, we must not allow circumstances to define God. Let me say that again. We must not allow circumstances to define God. Because if circumstances define God, then as soon as things go south, I'll do exactly what Satan was trying to tempt Job to do. I'll turn my back on him, and I will curse God's name. But again, when you know who he is, and then the storm hits, we are able to say with Job, Job chapter 1 and verse 21, blessed be the name of the Lord. One final thought. What's interesting is, as I was going through this story and and reading through the whole book of Job, what's interesting is, where is the adversary after all these things take place? Things go sideways. Is he there to help pick up the pieces? Things go south. Is he there to help put my life back together? No, after Satan gets done reaping all of his destruction and making a disaster out of Job's life and breaking everyone's heart, he's nowhere to be found. Friends, he is not your friend. Rather, he is exactly what the Bible says he is. He is your adversary. So let us join Job in saying, Blessed be the name of the Lord, because my God is not defined by my circumstances. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you so much for this great man of God, Job, for the example that he gives us. Lord, we just ask in these quiet moments of communion now. There's questions that we have. There's questions that Job had. He he didn't understand why all this was going on. He brought some complaints your way, and you were okay with it. Lord, at the end of the day, he knew who you were, and he worshipped you sitting there on that pile of ashes. God, may we this morning acknowledge who you are. And even in the midst of our own things going south. May we say, blessed be the name of the Lord. God, take these moments of quiet. Work in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.